stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Interesting to me that uh, just under a month ago, significant changes came into effect regarding Canada's impaired driving laws. Uh, and, and they have been, well, first of all, they seem to catch everybody by surprise. And they have been overshadowed by the changes that were brought in regarding the legal status of cannabis. The government did all of this in one fell swoop. They legalized cannabis and there was companion legislation uh, that overhauled Canada's impaired driving. Now, in terms of legalizing cannabis, it, it might make sense then that there would be some changes in impaired driving legislation that would at least clarify the rules around cannabis use and THC impairment. But of course, along with that came a number of changes related to alcohol impaired driving, and specifically the use of breathalyzers. Now, we've been telling you about it, and, and people have been surprised by it. Changes that took effect December 18th, for example. This is certainly one of the big changes. Now, uh, the police no longer need a reasonable suspicion that someone has been drinking before demanding they provide a breath sample. In other words, police can demand any motorist provide a breath sample, and they don't need any kind of basis for making that demand. Now, perhaps the aim of this is to allow police at check stops to just simply demand every motorist provide a breath sample, but it is certainly not exclusive to check stops. And can be used at any point. We told you about the story the other day of this individual in Toronto on a Saturday morning was bringing bottles back for a refund. Police officer thought he had an unusually high amount uh, of bottles in his vehicle and demanded that he blow into uh, a breathalyzer. The guy said, yeah, I've been drinking. I had a, a beer last night at home. It's now Saturday morning. I'm returning my empties. Well, that's got a lot of attention. But here's another change you might not be aware of. Let me go to a global consumer affairs reporter, Sean O'Shea, who's been working on the story this week. As we reported this week, police no longer need grounds to pull over and stop someone and administer a breath sample to see if you've been drinking. That's what happened to Art from Mississauga last weekend. He said, no, he said, I saw you at the beer store. And to me, you were taking back what looked like, in my opinion, an excessive amount amount of bottles. He wasn't drinking and passed the test. But now for two hours after you've been driving, you could also be considered impaired, even if you're not behind the wheel anymore. Maybe you're in a bar. And they come and find you at, at the restaurant. They can take you out of the restaurant, despite the fact that you've been drinking in the restaurant. Maybe you weren't going to drive away. Maybe your spouse was there to drive you home. You could have left a golf game sober. A competitor makes an anonymous call to police, saying you're impaired. They send an officer to your home and demand a test. You have committed no crime. You would not even have blown a warn on the way home, yet you will be fixed with whatever blood alcohol level you achieve uh, when the police uh, intercept you at your home. It's profound and profoundly stupid, so most people assume that it can't be, uh, but that is what the law is now, and you will see it happen, I guarantee it. So let that sink in for a moment. Up to two hours after you've arrived at your home, a police officer can show up and demand a breath sample. You might say, well, Rob, what if I get home? I go to the fridge, I have a beer, I sit on my couch and drink it. Maybe I get up and go to the fridge a couple more times. And then I'm going to be asked to provide a breath sample? Yeah, you might. It's conceivable. 
Joining us to talk a bit more about this change and some of the implications of it, very pleased to welcome back to the program Kyla Lee, Vancouver-based criminal defense attorney with expert in DUI, impaired driving, and IRP. You can find out more, by the way, at IRPlawyer.com. Kyla, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. All right. I mean, this this sounds crazy on the surface. Am, Am I missing any important details about this change? Uh, no, you've, you've summarized it pretty accurately, and it is indeed crazy, not just on the surface, but in its substance. Uh, one of the other aspects of this change is that in order for you to be successful at proving that you were basically doing nothing wrong at trial, you have a burden to testify and deduce evidence that uh, not only did you not have any reasonable expectation you would be asked to provide a breath sample, but also that whatever you drank after you finished driving would have put you at or above 80 um, and that you were below 80 while you were driving. So a huge evidentiary burden on the accused person that we don't ordinarily see in our criminal process. I can understand in in a way that, I mean, look, if we've got somebody who who genuinely is drunk behind the wheel and, you know, the the idea that all they need to do is get to their front door and then there's nothing we can do at that point, is that to suggest that we didn't have a way of dealing with that kind of situation in the past? Absolutely not. We had excellent ways of dealing with that in the past. Um, There were all sorts of uh, provisions that allowed police to take breath samples if they believed somebody had been driving with alcohol in their body within the preceding three hours, um, as long as the court could uh, find some evidence before them that uh, alcohol wasn't consumed after driving or the amount of alcohol consumed after driving wouldn't have put someone um, in excess of of 80 after uh, driving, then they could uh, they could still get a conviction. And for people who made it to their front door and then ran inside and drank liquor to try and conceal their guilt while they were driving, they could face an obstruction charge. There was actually a really high-profile case involving a police officer here who did that, who was convicted of obstruction. So th- this change wasn't necessary then, in your view? In my view, it was absolutely unnecessary. All it, do, all it did was uh, essentially clarify that you can't obstruct justice, but make it impossible, essentially, for an accused person to prove that they weren't obstructing justice when they were doing something that most people do every day, get home, have a, have a glass of wine, or have a drink after work. Right. I mean, two hours is a long time. It's, it's a very long time. The idea that you can't be in your house for two hours and have any alcohol if there's a possibility that while you were driving home, you may have struck a curb because you were tired from a long day at work, or somebody might have called you in because they have a vendetta against you, or you were in a minor fender bender on your way home, and when you got home and you're you know a little shaken up from that, you decide to have a drink to sort of take the edge off. Uh, that's stuff that people do every day, and the idea that you can't do that, I, I think, is very troubling. So where's the onus then? If if somebody comes home and they have a few drinks uh, upon arriving home and then an officer shows up and says, we had a call, we had a complaint uh, about your driving, you need to blow into a breathalyzer, uh, the individual tests positive but says, look, I, I was not drinking before, I've been drinking since I arrived home. Is it up to the accused to try to prove that or, or do the police have to make that? Is that burden of proof? It's up to the accused. So we're taking the burden of proof, which, of course, is ordinarily on the state, so the police and the prosecutors, and we're shifting it to an accused person, which raises all sorts of issues about the fairness of the trial process, particularly when you consider that people are often facing two separate charges and taking the stand to testify in your defense on the the 
at or over 80 charge might allow the prosecution to to cross-examine you on the other charge, the impaired driving charge, and potentially uh, secure a conviction on that because you're doing what you have to do to, to defend yourself. I mean, how would you how would you even go about proving that? <laughs> That's the big question. I mean, it's it's impossible to prove that you didn't expect something to happen. You're essentially requiring people to prove a negative proposition, um, and and we don't have any definition in the legislation of of what it means that you didn't expect that you were going to have to blow. Whether that means that you nothing happened in your driving on that way, so that you wouldn't think the police would show up at your door, or that there was no indication that police were pursuing you a much a much you know lower standard to prove and and higher a burden for the crown to meet in those circumstances, but we don't know. We have no guidance from Parliament on this. They gave us no indication, which means people are just going to have to be charged, take the stand, and it's all going to have to be sorted out in court. Which it likely will, right? Yes. I mean, eventually it's going to be sorted out in court if it's not found unconstitutional. And a couple of years ago, we saw cases that required an accused to prove several aspects of very difficult to prove things in impaired driving prosecutions go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it was struck down uh, for a violation of uh, the fair trial process. I mean, isn't this a search? If police got some other complaint, whether it was about drugs or maybe even uh, someone spotted with, with a gun... Uh, they, they can't just show up at your home and, and search your home, can they? Not ordinarily, unless they're in fresh pursuit, in which case they can uh, come into your house to try and preserve the evidence, or if they have reason to believe that you are destroying evidence. But with alcohol in your body, because your body is naturally eliminating alcohol you know, as soon as you begin to consume it, um, the evidence by, by virtue of your biological processes is being destroyed. And I expect that police are going to rely on that to enter into people's homes and to require them to provide breath samples and and, and uh, justify it on a concern that the evidence is being lost as time progresses. Uh, by the way, we, we mentioned at the top as well this case uh, of this guy in Mississauga uh, who was returning his, his empty bottles uh, on a Saturday morning and was demanded that he provide a breath sample. I mean, wh- what does that case indicate to you? That indicates to me that the police are already using their broad authority in circumstances that would never call for it. Um, it. It shows that the police have been given this extreme amount of power to demand breath samples and that they're taking advantage of that power without really thinking through whether it's necessary. I mean, the idea that somebody on a Saturday morning returning bottles had consumed the alcohol from those bottles is, is a very difficult one to grasp when we know that people collect bottles for fun raising people collect bottles some people for income or for charity events um and some people just accumulate their bottles in their garage and then eventually just take them back one day when they've got a little extra time um so this to me is very troubling right and i I suppose defenders of this approach would say well look the guy in question he provided a breast sample he, he tested sober and you know he was free to go on his way so no harm no foul but what would you say in response to that I would say that any time an individual is detained by the state and asked to provide a sample of a bodily substance, including breath, uh, that there is harm, that that is the state interfering with your individual liberty and your right to move freely without interference from the police. And the more comfortable we become with that idea, the more easy it is for us to slip into uh, something that approaches a police state. Like you say, it seems uh, almost certain that these provisions are going to be tested in court. Much more is mentioned, IRPLawyer.com on Twitter as well, at IRPLawyer. Kyla, thanks as always for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here today.
Thanks for having me. All right. That is uh, Vancouver-based criminal defense attorney Kyla Lee, specializes uh, in this area, uh, legislation around DUI, IRP, and impaired driving. So she sees some big problems with this. To me, those problems are obvious, especially these provisions that would allow police to go into your home, not even just your home. I mean, certainly your home is very symbolic in uh, that, you know, your home is your castle kind of thing. But I mean, it would apply if you're out in public, if you're at a bar, a restaurant, even if you're at a golf course. Uh, up to two hours after police can come find you and demand that you provide a breath sample. Even though you're at home, you're at a restaurant, you're at a golf course, you may have been consuming alcohol in those interim two hours. So what's going to happen then? You get to the golf course, it's a hot day, you've golfed a few holes, you've had a few beers. All of a sudden, the police show up. Well, we managed to track you down. Somebody phoned in a complaint about your vehicle. Your license plate said you were driving erratically. We need you to blow into this breathalyzer. Well, now you're hooped. Because you've been drinking on the golf course. Of course you're going to register. And now it's up to you to prove that you weren't drinking before you were driving. The onus is not on the state. The onus is on you. Doesn't this all seem crazy? This has got to change. I mean, we can let it go through the courts and let some judges come back months or years from now and, and point out that this is unconstitutional. Or we can have government fix this. That would be a lot cleaner that would be a lot simpler that would be a lot quicker the question is how we allowed it to get that way in the first place afternoons with rob breckenridge starting at 12 30 on news talk 770 calgary